Hello and welcome to today's edition of HIV Matters. HIV Matters explores the current issues people living with HIV experience that impacts on their quality of life. The podcast is hosted by me, Michelle Croston, Associate Professor of Nursing at the University of Nottingham. I have a long history of working in HIV care and will be joined on the podcast by leading professionals and activists in the field of HIV that I've had the pleasure of working with throughout my career. HIV Masters is supported by an unrestricted educational grant from VIVE. VIVE has had no input into speakers or content. So today I'm joined on HIV Matters by Liz Foote, who is currently the chair of the National HIV Nurses Association. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our podcast guest, Liz, who is currently the service manager for the HIV services in Sussex and has a long history of working in HIV care. I've had the opportunity of working with Liz on a variety of different projects over a vast amount of time. One of the most recent projects we've worked together on was a conference presentation that explored intentional non-adherence within HIV care and the role of the healthcare professional. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce Liz today, who I know is really passionate about this subject area. For those listeners who are unsure about what we mean by the term um, non-adherence, Can you just explain a little bit more about that for us, Liz? Yeah, so non-adherence, simply put, um, just um, is a description of people who struggle to take their medication, whether that be for HIV, TB, um, diabetes. um, You know, a lot of people struggle with non-adherence and non-adherence falls into two categories. Um, There's intentional non-adherence and there's unintentional non-adherence and unintentional non-adherence is when a patient unintentionally struggles to take their tablets due to barriers such as mental health issues, dementia, drug and alcohol issues, forgetfulness and intentional non-adherence is really really different. This is when a patient actively decides to stop their treatment. Thank you for that overview, Liz. It sounds like a really complex and challenging area of care. And I'm wondering from your perspective, if you could share some thoughts on how we might approach or manage this um, situation if patients choose to opt out of treatment, um, as otherwise, as you've mentioned, um, classed as intentional non-adherence. Yeah, thanks, Michelle. So I became really interested in this topic Um, I worked as a palliative care specialist nurse for about five years and I looked after end-of-life patients who um, would have given anything to have life-sustaining treatment and, um, you know, um, if they'd have been given a chance, they'd have cut off their right arm to to have medication that would meant they would stay alive and well. And then um, about five years ago, working as a HIV community nurse, Um, I came across a patient who I was involved with who was only 20 and um, he decided to stop taking his HIV medication. He was, uh, he'd been HIV positive since birth, so it's vertical transmission and he'd obviously struggled over the years um, to accept his his HIV status. So I came um, into his life about a year before he sadly died. And that year was incredibly challenging for me, watching a young, beautiful man 
choose to not take his HIV treatment. And um, as a result of him choosing not to take his HIV treatment, he died of end-stage HIV. And it's something that we shouldn't see anymore. And um, I've also, you know, when I started working HIV back in the mid nineties, many of my patients at that time down in London were end of, um, end of life and they were also dying from end stage HIV. See that now is very, very difficult. And I couldn't get my head around why he chosen to stop taking his treatment. Um, so that's what started my interest in um, intentional non-adherence. I think it's important um, just to um, clarify that um, I'm going to be talking about a caseload review that we did recently. And I work in community HIV services, which predominantly looks after complex patients with HIV. Um, these patients often have additional psychosocial issues on top of their HIV status, such as substance use issues, complex mental health issues, deprivation, isolation issues and comorbidities. And just recently, we carried out a comprehensive caseload review with the Sussex HIV Community Service. So we did this last week so I could get really current information. Um, I did this with the Brighton and Hove team who see really complex patients. And we were able to identify and explore those patients who actively choose not to take their HIV medication and why some HIV patients decide to intentionally stop HIV medication. So of the caseload, 45% of the caseload were identified as having adherence issues and needing very intense support from the specialist nurses around this specific issue. So that's half the caseload almost. 25.49% of the caseload had a detectable viral load, which is really high actually. And of those with a detectable viral load, 9.8% had chosen to opt out of treatment so therefore, it was intentional non-adherence as to why they were detectable. But, you know, the UK has made significant progress in antiretroviral treatment coverage. And overall, we know as well in the United Kingdom that numbers of people living with HIV in the UK, most, most people are virally suppressed and the Fast Track City initiatives have been instrumental in all of this. And I think it's easy to get quite carried away with how well we are doing because we are doing well but then it's important not to forget that small but really significant number of people who are detectable and are really struggling for various reasons you know brilliant thanks Liz. i think you're right i think we we have made great strides with different initiatives you've mentioned fast track cities advances in hiv treatment yeah. so often we can kind of think about people who don't take treatment or are struggling or the intentional non-adherence and it can feel like that's a small proportion but from your case note review it sounded like it was a, a high proportion of people who were struggling I'm just wondering is there any other surprises from your review that you you're able to share with us yeah um so I don't think any of it is a surprise and I think when you work in um you know, because I've predominantly the last 10 years almost worked in community HIV nursing, we tend to only see the complex patients. So the patients that are struggling, the patients that are really difficult to engage with. Um, 
you know, I, I don't know what it feels like to work in a um, clinic environment where most of the patients that you see on a daily basis are undetectable. It must be really wonderful. Um, it's really hard work for the community specialist nurses who don't often see great results. Um, so there weren't, it wasn't a surprise. We weren't surprised by those numbers. Um, I think what it makes us realise is we've got a lot of work still to do. Um, some of the themes that sort of arose from when we were looking at the reasons why people have decided to opt out, um, some of the themes we identified included um, alternative therapy, traditional medicine, conspiracy theorists, um, slow progressors who feel well. Um, lack of trust in healthcare professionals due to past experiences of drug interactions, for example. And, and I think for us who have worked in HIV a long time, we do remember when HIV medication was ruthless. It was so horrible. It was so toxic. And you can understand then why some people will be quite mistrusting of new medications that are coming out. And um, worried about drug interactions with other medications that they might be on for other comorbidities. Um, I think medication fatigue can be an issue. We, we see this in our patients um, who are just tired of taking their medication. Depression, low self-esteem. Um, social isolation, I think, is one of the main um, reasons. And this really resonates with me. I think I just feel so incredibly sad when I see people that are so socially isolated that they don't see any point in looking after their health. They've got no one to be well for. And um, I can't imagine how that must feel. You know, um, fear of side effects, medication toxicity, which I've sort of touched on, um, that desire to survive, but not with HIV. And that tablet every day just reminds you that you've got HIV and you'd rather not be reminded. Um, and the need to exercise control, I think, is one of the main reasons why we see people opting out of treatment. We all need to be in control. And um, this is a way of feeling in control. Um, it's it's um, denying yourself stopping medication and punishment for significant others. Um, I think the need for control is really interesting, um, and I've spoken about this before, but um, for some people choosing not to take life-sustaining treatment is about regaining control. And um, Brown, I've quoted Brown before, um, has written quite a lot in the 90s on anorexia and bulimia, but they they this quote that they say power struggles in therapeutic relationships are disastrous so that relationship between the patient and the nurse or the patient and the doctor as they force people who feel out of control to cling more desperately to the only control they have and that patient that i was speaking about earlier um who initially got me interested in this topic you know i think for them it was very much a, a means of um clinging to control, stopping their medication. And I and I reflecting back on that case, I completely can see how his relationship with the nurses and his relationship with consultants became a complete power struggle. Um, 
So yeah, that need for control is really interesting. And I think the more we as nurses especially try to take power away or enforce our opinions on someone, the more the patient's behaviours are likely to escalate. So they were the themes we sort of um, identified. So some really key learning that has come from the audit, you know, and I think you've touched upon things that are really kind of emotive as well, haven't you? You know, the, yeah. the social isolation. I know, again, I can't also imagine what that must feel like. Um, and also um, thinking about that power struggle um, that we can often, with the best intentions, get ourselves into with patients. You know, you mentioning about patients dying quite horrible deaths and trying in our way to sort of prevent that from happening by encouraging them to take tablets mm. as we know just as you mentioned just amps up that kind of power dynamic I'm just wondering from a kind of your point of view and from a learning from the team after undertaking the review is anything kind of changed or is there anything that you think well actually maybe this is something that we can think about moving forward I think I think one thing that um we, we do well um, as HIV nurses is we reflect, we constantly reflect and we constantly discuss challenging situations with our patients. And I know certainly when I worked in Liverpool, we, we, that was something we did every day on a daily basis. And just by doing that constant reflection, you, you learn what you did right and what you did wrong, what you wouldn't do again and what you do better. And certainly down here in Sussex, I see the um, HIV specialist nurses um, reflecting and talking through their challenges with their patients. And some nurses have great ideas about an approach they might take and um, because it's worked in the past. Um, it's, I think we're constantly learning, Michelle, <laughs> about how to deal with this because it's so, it's so, um, it's so challenging and it's so distressing to see patients choose to opt out of treatment when there's such amazing treatment out there now. You know, I could understand it back in the 80s and early 90s when the treatment was so awful. We could completely understand why patients chose not to take their treatment and, and preferred just to slowly die. Um, Whereas now it's really hard to understand why you would choose to re refuse one tablet a day. Um, that's so effective. So I think I think um, I think um, you know one of the things I say to the nurses quite a lot is is about our expectations as nurses. Our expectations are often way too high, um, and and you know lowering those expectations or or changing those expectations to fit with our patients on an individualized basis. Um, for example, you know, I was saying to a nurse the other week, if, if a patient opens their door to you every week, they might not be taking their tablets, they might be very detectable, but the fact they're even opening their door to you every week and engaging with you is a huge achievement, you know. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it is a really challenging, um, situation. No, definitely. I think you've highlighted really well the power of reflection. That's something that I'm really passionate about within nursing because we've got a lot of skills yeah. and expertise and just creating that space, as you've said, to reflect on what went well, what didn't 
go well and sharing those experiences in a really complex situation is really useful obviously listening to you is what's coming across loud and clear is the role of the nurse and how important that is in this aspect of care and I know from my own attempts to ask you questions I keep fumbling over my words in an attempt to get it right um, but I'm just wondering you know I keep flitting between non-adherence and intentional non-adherence um, and I'm just wondering um, from your point of view how important do you think the language that we use when we're talking to people living with HIV about this aspect of care is? Yeah so I think language is um one of the most important um, tools that we have as nurses, and um, that can be both verbal and non-verbal. So I'm not just talking about verbal words, but how we communicate non-verbally as well. And as you know, Michelle, I think working in HIV, one of the most important things is not being judgmental, not not um, judging people for the choices that they make. And, and actually, I think... HIV on the whole attracts incredibly non-judgmental practitioners. Um, you know, so, so I think that non-judgmental attitude in our non-verbal language is so, so important. If a patient feels that they're being listened to and if a patient feels accepted, that's huge straight away. You know, we've 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 kind of um, got through the first big barrier and and you know it, then that comes down to trust isn't it and building up a relationship which is based on trust between the nurse um, or the doctor and the patient so the language we use is so important um i talk in in the presentation that i gave um um i talk about the word compliance for example um that you know throughout my nursing career i have heard that word used far too much so the word compliance relates to a more paternalistic or even autocratic relationship in which someone is seen as either following instructions so they're being compliant or they're disregarding them they're being non-compliant and um, I've you know I've witnessed people being labeled as non-compliant in MDTs and um, it's a horrible word and it becomes a barrier to empathizing with our patients and it completes straight away it prevents us from understanding why our patient is unable or unwilling to um, choose certain lifestyles um, or make certain changes such as taking their medication um, it you know it places responsibility for a perceived failure on that patient um, so it's a horrible word um, the word concordance is a much better word. Um, it's an indicator of the quality of decision making in healthcare, and it depends on the patient being well informed. And as I've said just before, a concordant relationship in, is based on trust. And that, I think that's that's when it comes to the language we use. As long as everything we're saying, and um, verbally and non-verbally, is based on respect for our patients, um, we build this beautiful, trusting relationship with our patients um, our tone is important too you know you can you can have two people say exactly the same thing to a patient and yet their tones are different and that patient will react in a different way to both people based on their tone um, that constantly isn't it I did, I did um, advanced communication skills um, when I was a Macmillan nurse and and just the power of the language we use and the power of the way 
we um, communicate that language is crucial um, and can either do terrible damage or it can um, make a beautiful relationship. <laughs> yeah, no, brilliant. And I think also as well, just when I was listening to you kind of talk about language, what became apparent was about creating that power um, dynamic yeah. as well. So definitely what you mentioned about Brown's work around creating that power within um therapeutic relationships even the language we use can inadvertently like you said we we may be trying our best within the dynamic of the relationship but by altering the phrases that we use it can just shift that power back to a more neutral level and like you say yeah. that's built on respect and trust so so thank you very much for that. I'm just mindful that we've both kind of worked in HIV care for some time now and we've had experiences of working with people who have, have you know, had intentional non-adherence. I'm thinking about people that are maybe new to HIV care or have got an interest in working in this aspect. Is there any education available um, for people to access or how would you maybe advise somebody starting out on the career if this is and aspects of care that they'd like to learn a little bit more about? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think I think it's interesting, isn't it? I think we live in a culture, in a health culture, where it's all about public health. It's all about every contact counts. It's all about um, consultations, about the risks of alcohol, the risks of smoking, and the risks of eating too much. And I think we... Are in danger then of of remembering just what being a nurse and looking after patients is about. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and and I guess you know, for especially for our new cohorts of nurses that are coming, you know, what I would stress to them is 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 respecting a patient's choice. Always, always um, having that in the back of your mind. Um, you know, we know that. The right to die is a highly emotive topic. Euthanasia is a highly emotive topic. Um, respecting someone's choice to die or, or stopping life-sustaining treatment is complex. And um, you know, you're not gonna just see that in HIV, you're gonna see it in diabetes and COPD and heart failure. And I think we need to remember, we need to sort of remind each other and we need to remind sort of the new young nurses coming through and the new young doctors that liberty and autonomy or self-government are sources of human dignity too we're not telling patients what to do we need to get away from that um you know the general medical council discusses personal beliefs and medical practice and i wish someone had told me this at the start of my career um, that you know it's stated in the GMC you must respect a competent patient's decision to refuse an investigational treatment even if you think their decision is wrong or irrational you may advise you must not put pressure on them to accept your advice and I know personally for me that I've probably spent most of my career telling patients what to do um, and um, in, a, in a lovely way of course but you know telling them they shouldn't drink so much, telling them they need to stop smoking, telling them um, they need to take this medication. And I think, um, you know, if I could turn back time, I would do things very differently. That patient I speak about at the start of this podcast, 
there is so much I would have done differently with him, so much. And he did have mental capacity and it was assessed countless times and he had every right to choose to stop his treatment. And actually, when I look back to, to that case, Michelle, you know, if we'd have concentrated on what he wanted, we could have spent more time preparing him for death. We could have spent more time getting involved in advanced care planning. We could have spent more time with his mum, with his sister, um, preparing them as well. But our whole emphasis and focus most of the time was on trying to convince him to start taking his HIV medication. Um, so there isn't a lot of education out there around intentional non-adherence. There isn't a lot of, um, you know, I've, I've looked for research on it. I found some good pieces, but there's not a lot of um, research that's been done on intentional non-adherence. Um, so I've, certainly for me, I've had to sort of learn how to approach and how to manage patients who choose not to take their medication. And it's probably my learning has come much more, more out of reflection and um, personal cases um, that I've really had to learn from. Thank you for being so uh, open and honest and about your learnings on, on this issue. And I think I myself in my career have been dragged down that rabbit hole of thinking it's my job to convince somebody to do something. And I think it's with experience. And sometimes I know the lessons that I've learned in my career have sometimes come at a cost to my own personal kind of, you know, thoughts about how I believe nursing should be. So I think you're right, it's really useful to, to have that in mind that it's not our job to convince people. It's about providing choice, support and empowerment. Um, as well. So thank you very much for sharing your thoughts and thank you so much for today and to um, joining me on the podcast. So this is the part of the show that I get really excited about. Um, although I have worked with you and had the pleasure of um, spending time with you, this is the part for our guests where we get to know you a little bit better. So just before we close the podcast, I'd just like to ask you, can you tell, tell our listeners or name one thing that brings you joy? Spending time with my family, the most important thing, with my husband and my three kids and my mum and my dad. Thank you. Yeah, lovely. Also, can you share with us a book that you may have been reading at the minute or something, a book that you've read recently? So I love, um, oh, Michelle, um, I, love, I love psychological domestic thrillers. That's how I relax. I love reading. I read every night for an hour before I go to bed. And it has to be a really good psychological thriller. We're in a world where we've got access to loads of different sources of information. I'm just wondering if you've come across anything that's made you think a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, um, the, I, I guess something I've watched recently that I, that I absolutely loved, I don't know if other people like this, is series Afterlife. Um, me and my husband have absolutely binge watched every series and he's there's three series now and it always makes us cry um, and it's really about um, he, he loses his wife and um, it's about bereavement really 
um, basically how he how he copes after he, his wife dies. And I guess you know it's not something I've learned, but it just reinforces to me every time I watch Afterlife is just don't take life for granted and um, don't take your loved ones for granted. And I think every day is a gift that we've been given. And um, yeah. Thank you, Liz, for sharing Afterlife with me. I'll definitely be adding that to my Netflix viewing. I would like to thank today's guest for joining me on HIV Matters. If you have any suggestions for guests you would like to see on the podcast, or if you fancy joining me on the show, please contact me at michelle.croston at nottingham.ac.uk. If you'd like to find out more about Nivna, head over to their website at www.nivna.org. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button to HIV Matters if you haven't already done so. Until next time, from the team at HIV Matters, thank you for listening and together we can make a difference.